So Nate and I have been preaching through the book of Habakkuk, and I'll just kind of, we're in chapter 2 now, so I'll, I'll back up and just a quick review of what we've covered in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk is asking the question, why haven't you dealt with this injustice, Lord? He was living in a time when Israel, the nation of Israel, was running amok and there was all kinds of sin and all kinds of just uh, corruption going on. And Habakkuk was saying, why haven't you dealt with this? Why do you let sin reign in the world and why don't you deliver your people from this sinful lifestyle? And then verses 5 through 11, the Lord gives his answer which was probably not the one that Habakkuk was necessarily looking for. And the Lord's answer was, I'm going to do something you're not going to believe. You're not going to believe me when I tell you I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. I'm going to raise up Babylon. And they are going to come in as vile heathens and punish your nation, the nation of Israel. And so the last time I preached in verses 12 through 17... We see Habakkuk trying to deal with an answer that he really doesn't like. And, and he basically he's, he's wrestling with two questions in this, in this deal. And the first one is, how could a pure and holy God approve and use those that are wicked? And the second question is, how could God judge Judah, his nation, using a nation that was more wicked than they are? And then in, in verse 1 in chapter 2, we, we heard last time, Habakkuk, he, he's trying to take all this in, and he kind of takes a step back. He says he's going to go to his strong tower, so he's just like, okay, I, I don't get it. But remember the name Habakkuk means embracer of God. And I think we see, we saw this, we saw this, his name meaning come out in that verse 1 of chapter 2. I don't get it, Lord I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to go and I'm going to be still and I'm going to wait on you. I think that we can learn a lot from Habakkuk in that situation. There's so many times we don't understand what God's doing in our lives. There's so many times we don't understand why this, why me, why now. And I think we would be well, um, I think it would do us well to act like Habakkuk did there and just be still and wait on God to give him an answer. And then verses 2 through 4, God gives him the answer. And the answer was, the just shall live by faith. And that's the pinnacle of the whole book. That's actually the pinnacle of the whole Bible, if you really think about it. The just shall live by faith. It's not based on everything that's going on out here. It's not based on everything that we are doing or they are doing or all these things that we're doing. It is based on our faith in God's righteousness. It's based in our faith in Him. And so that brings us to today in verse 5. And I'm going to go through... The rest of chapter 2, Lord willing, and, um, and cover this. What we have here, I call it the five woes of Habakkuk. 
So he's still dealing with this nation of Babylon, these Chaldeans that are going to come in and judge. And, and no doubt God is showing him, revealing to him somewhat of this, what this is going to look like. He's a prophet. He's seeing this in advance. And so he's dealing with, now he's dealing with in his mind these people. And what we see in this is we see mankind. We see... A, you can look through history, and Babylon isn't the first nation to be like this. Matter of fact, it's always one after the other after the other. All through history, you have this people. It's because of our human nature, our sin nature. And when God lifts his restraint, then it allows this kind of behavior. So we're going to look at that. So we'll look at verse 5. In chapter 2, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So we get some more insight here what Babylon and what these people are like. Four things he gives here. He's a drunkard. Babylonians, they're a drunkard. Proud, arrogant, boastful. They're greedy and they're war-hungry people. It seems to me like you can compare this to a the way that they operate seems very much like the way terrorism operates today. It's a terrorist nation. They take what they want because they can. If, they, if you don't agree, they're going to take it by force. If you do agree, they're going to take it by force anyway. You're going to comply or else. It's a terrorist nation. Um, throughout history, you can think of other ones that were like this, kind of like the Vikings were similar to this. They would just go wherever they wanted, plumage and pillage, and that's how they got their wealth. But he says, wine is a traitor. And if you look at Daniel chapter 5, remember Daniel, in, in this book of Daniel... This is after Babylon has taken over, um, has taken over Judah, and they're in reigning. And this is Belshazzar, chapter five, verses one through five. You see the drunkenness of Babylon. Of Babylon, this is the king Belshazzar. The king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Do you see what's going on here? Sometimes you've got to slow down and really get a picture of what's going on. This is not just, they're not just sitting around drinking wine. There's thousands, this is a big party. He's got his wives and his concubines, and they're all in there just having a big drunkard party. And what are they drinking out of? The temple uh, bowl, uh, vessels, the ones built in honor of God, the ones that he commanded to be built for worship in his temple, they're drinking their liquor and their wine out of it, getting drunk and having, I mean, what follows that kind of stuff? And it says, they, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. 
They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And I'm going to go ahead and read verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, what that was was a warning to Belshazzar that you're about to, you're about to die. Your kingdom's going to fall. And we're going to see that in Habakkuk's prophecy here. But what, what we know, and history confirms it, the Babylonians were drunkards. They would come in, they would take over, and then they would party it up. But wine is a traitor. It, 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 it's a liar. Alcohol. It is as destructive in history as probably any one substance has ever been. I mean, think about drunkenness. And, and if, you weren't, if you haven't been here on Wednesday night, Randy has done a great job of going through uh, things that are not necessarily wrong in themselves, but when you get into excess, they are. And so I know that there's a, there's a level of this that is... Uh, it is not sin to drink a wine. Okay? Scripturally speaking... But here's a here's a warning to anybody who um, who tends to do that. Be careful because look at what drunkenness leads to. It's ruined marriages, it's caused wars, it's cost fortunes, it's led to murders, and it has numbed minds to the point that they cannot even understand spiritual matters. Drunkenness is a sin that causes many, many other sins. It is a traitor indeed. So, so just take heed that you do not become like the Babylonians. That you do not drink to a point of drunkenness. Because only evil will follow that. So wine is a traitor. He's a drunkard. Second thing, he's an arrogant man who is never at rest. How often does an unrestful soul lead to drunkenness? Isn't that the problem with young people? Well, that was my problem in college. I, was un, I had an unrestful soul. I didn't like to be still. I couldn't deal with myself when I sat still, so I turned to drunkenness. Isaiah 28.1 says, All oh, the proud crown of drunken, drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Pride and drunkenness comes together. And if you have a problem with pride, and you get drunk, what usually comes out? If you guys have ever been around a proud drunk, they get loud. And they get more arrogant. And they get more obnoxious and harder to deal with. They go hand in hand and that's what we see. That's what the Babylonians were all about. And Habakkuk is seeing this come in, and he's saying, okay, these are the guys that are going to take over. The overbearing nature never takes a break with these kind of people. It's constant. And then it says, his greed is as wide as Sheol. It's talking about the grave there. 
The grave opened up its mouth when Cain killed Abel, the very first born sons of creation of Adam and Eve. And the grave opened up his mouth and it has not been satisfied yet. No matter how many men die, no matter how many bodies are thrown into that grave and feed that mouth of Sheol, it can never be satisfied in this life. The more the die, the more it wants. And that is what we have with the greed of the Babylonians. That's what we have with greed in general. You can never satisfy it. It's like trying to feed the grave. It will never fill. There's no amount of money or things or power that could ever satisfy the greedy heart. There's no, no amount of those things that could satisfy the greed of the Babylonians. And then it says, he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. They were a war-hungry people who took their conquered people as slaves. He gathers for himself all nations. Wherever they went and fought, it wasn't like the United States fights wars now where we go over and we fight and then we leave. No, they were taken over the world. That was their goal. That was the goal of war in that time. They would go and they would fight and they would take that land. But they treated the people in terrible ways. And this is what Habakkuk is seeing. He's seeing, okay, well, they're not just going to come in and beat us up a little bit and then leave. If God's raising up the Chaldeans, if God's raising up Babylon to judge us, most of us are going to die. The ones who don't die are going to be taken as slaves and are going to be treated horribly. We can see that as you read through the book of Daniel, which is exactly what happened. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, so what's he do? He makes the fire as hot as it's ever been and throws them in. Now, these are the reports that we get. These are the reports that God gave us. We don't know about all the ones that he didn't write down. But no doubt there were others who were killed in all kinds of manners. And God spared them, of course, and he spared Daniel, of course, in the lion's den. But others, that, those were the ones that he spared. No doubt he didn't spare them all. And so Habakkuk is seeing this. And that brings us to the five woes of Habakkuk. So verse 6, it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth. Two cities and all who dwell in them. So this is woe to the terrorist. Woe to the thief. Babylon was a thief. They plunder and pillage and take the product of other men's hard work. He talks about in, in the... Um, he talks about the pledges. He, he makes, makes them give pledges. What pledges were was kind of a form of payment when a man could not pay, almost like an IOU in that time period. But in this case, though, how, it, how Babylon worked was when they went into a place, 
And they took everything you had, and that wasn't enough, so they made you give them pledges of more. And if you, obviously, they've already taken everything you have, so you have nothing left. And these pledges, you couldn't pay it, so most of the time it would lead to slavery. You're going to pay these pledges back because I'm going to own you. And they didn't treat their slaves good, as you can imagine. The ones that were older, they killed because they were worthless to them. But the young ones that were strong, they would use as slaves. And But then, as you see the rest of this, those three verses, Habakkuk prophesies here that everything that the Babylonians have been doing is going to eventually be done to them. And we see it later fulfilled in the Medo-Persian Empire um, as it rises up against Babylon. And, and you go back and you read that in Daniel. Babylon was defeated with very little violence, mainly due to their arrogance. They thought they were invincible. They thought they were untouchable. And the Medes and the Persians come in and snuck in basically and took them over. But but what we see here in this prophecy, we see a biblical principle of reap what you sow. And I thought about this as I mean I've thought about this the last few weeks, or maybe even longer than that. This is a biblical reaping what you sow is a very biblical principle, and it stands very solid today. If you're a violent person, eventually that violence is going to catch up to you. You like to fight. Eventually, you're going to come across somebody that you can't beat. And they're going to beat you down, and you're going to pay dearly for your violence. You like to steal? You like to take things that don't belong to you? It's amazing to me, working at a school and seeing the kids that get the maddest when somebody takes stuff from them are the ones that take stuff from other kids all the time. Even if it's just messing around or even if it's real thievery, it's the same way it eventually comes back and gets gets you. You like to swindle? Eventually you're gonna get it you're gonna get the screws put to you. Look at that. Perfect example, big biblical example um is Jacob. Jacob was known as the supplanter, right? He pulled the, one of the biggest scams of all time when he kills a goat and puts it on his arms so that he can pretend that he's his brother Esau. Right? And he goes in, his father's blind, his father thinks he's given him the blessing, he thinks he's given Esau the blessing, but he's really giving it to Jacob. I mean, absolutely just dishonest. I mean, had to be well planned out to make this lie. And then what happened to him? Esau's going to kill him. So he's running from Esau, and he comes across a guy named Laban. And Laban was a bigger swindler than him. He fell in love with Rachel. He thought she was beautiful. He wants to marry her. He works seven years to earn the right to marry her. And what's Laban do? Sneaks in her sister Leah. And so now he's got to work seven more years. The swindler got swindled. These things are going to happen apart from... The, the the only time that we don't reap what we sow in this life is when Jesus took it for us. But what what I what I've been thinking about here lately, the world 
The world out here knows and believes this principle, but they call it something else. It's really interesting. You guys may know what I'm talking about. They get the wrong, they got the wrong name for it, and they give the credit to the wrong God and the wrong religion. But it's the, it's the principle that really is in play. They call it karma. They, they, they don't even know what karma means, obviously, which is a Hindu thing. But they call it karma when you get what's coming to you because of the way you've been acting. The Bible has made it clear this is going to happen. You reap what you sow. And that's what Habakkuk is saying here. He's saying they're going to do all this. They're going to come in. God's going to use them to judge this nation. But he's not going to leave it that way because of this principle. It is going to come back on them. And he says, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? And then you will be spoiled for them. He's talking to Babylon here. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. So what he's saying is eventually all these people that you've done this to, the ones who are suppressed, they're going to get tired of it. And eventually they're going to rise up and it's going to come right back to you. And the lesson that we can learn in that is so clear. No matter what, and then, okay, so then what happens? The Medes and the Persians now, they've taken Babylon. Are they in power today? No. Why? It, it just, it goes in a cycle. And, and we'll get to why here in a second, or to, to how we should deal with that in a second. But verse 9, it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So the picture here that he's making, he's comparing the arrogance of Babylon to an eagle whose nest is so high up in the trees, nothing can bother him. Have you seen an eagle's nest before? They're incredible. I mean, they, the, they'll find the highest pine tree or spruce tree in, in the mountains, and their nest is at the very, very top of it. Very little part of that tree is sticking out above their nest, and they got a view of as far as the eye can see any direction. And when they see something they're going to go eat, there's nothing can bother them up there. They got the high ground. They just swoop down and take whatever they want, right? Well, that's what Habakkuk is comparing Babylon to here. They, they think that they have built this nest so high that it can be untouchable. Their arrogance is that we are king of the land. And it's going to prove out, as he said, to not be true. But that's how they acted. They just set up on their high horse and whatever they would want, they just took. There was no regard for the other human life. There was no regard for anyone else. And the people in Babylon, it's funny, and when you have these countries, the only ones that are really, really enjoying the spoils are the ones that are high up there on the, on the chain of command. The people that are just going along with it, they're being suppressed as well. But he says, woe, great distress is coming to him who is using evil to gain for himself or herself. 
Are there any people like that left in the world? Has mankind changed any as we read this so long ago? It's the same. Mankind is the same as it was since the fall. There's people using evil to get gain for themselves. And he says, woe to them. And here's the thing about it. In that time, Israel, the nation of Israel, the the wicked men that were living there, thought they were getting away with it. The Babylonians thought they were getting away with it. And today, we have wicked men. They think they're getting away with it. They think they're cruising along and everything's great. They think this cleverly devised plan is going to work. But what's he say right there in verse 11? For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. There are always witnesses and God knows everything and sees everything. They cannot hide from this reality that this is all going to end. They cannot hide from this reality that they are violating the will and the nature of a holy God and he will come down on them. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fi- it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Their wicked violence. They've built these cities. They've built these empires on the blood of the people that got in the way. The Babylonians would kill anyone that got in their way of wealth and prosperity. And there's people, there's, there's people, it's different. It looks different in our culture. It looks different in our country. It looks different in other countries. But there's plenty of people who take that same method and they utilize it. And they call it in the name of progress. But men haven't changed. And so they would build the empire on the backs of those that they murdered. But what they didn't understand is that unless God builds it, it will fall. Psalm 127.1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes, but in vain. But he tells us that this laboring in vain, that's not from God. He did not design this evil and broken system of greed and violence. Obviously, this is not of him, but he's using it. He's using this evil system of broken and brokenness and violence to judge another evil system of broken and violence. He's using men to judge men, but ultimately he's sitting above all of it in control of all of it. But he doesn't he doesn't he didn't design this system. And so what we see is we see men working and working hard for what? To build up an empire that's going to collapse. It's like those, man, have you seen those sandcastles people build? Some of them are incredible. We built one one time. We've been to the beach once. Ours was not so incredible. A couple of buckets and... 
It was fun, though. But some of these people spend hours upon hours making this immaculate design of a sandcastle. And I thought, I mean, it's really neat to see. But man, the first wave comes and that thing is gone. That is no more than what these empires are doing. And I'll put the United States in that same thing. We've spent all kinds of effort and money. And we do it as individuals. We'll put all kinds of effort and money into building whatever it is that we're building. And for what? The first wave that comes along, it's gone. So the question I would ask is, are you laboring in vain? Are you too busy? Is there a reason for the, for the things that you are doing, for the things that you are putting your time and effort and money into? Is there a reason? And what is the reason? Stop and think about that before you continue and find out if you're laboring in vain or find out if you're putting your time and effort and money into eternal things. A castle that won't be washed away by the first wave that comes along. I think it's important that we examine these things. And then verse 14, he declares that the earth will be filled with knowledge and the glory of the Lord. And this is prophetic as well. He declares that the earth will be filled with knowledge and the glory of the Lord. You guys have heard it quoted many times. It's in Romans. It's in Philippians. It's in Revelation. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming a time when all of these poor wicked sinners will know that Christ is Lord. But it's going to come in a way that it wasn't like it was when it came to me. When Jesus revealed himself as Lord to me, it was in a very caring and loving way as he extended grace to me. And that grace is still extended today and it's available to any who have not bowed a knee to Christ. And I would just tell you, it's much better to bow your knee to Christ by now, by submission, than it will be when he reveals himself and every knee will bow. It won't be pleasant for those who are wicked. It won't be pleasant for those who, ha- who have denied him in this life. But it is coming. It's coming. It's God's purpose that those who place their faith in him will ultimately be preserved. And those who do-, do not will ultimately be judged to condemnation. But there will be no one who doubts his existence. There will be no one who even try. They won't even be able to speak and deny his power, his glory, His majesty, and they will know and they will glorify him forever in their punishment. Or you can glorify him forever in your grace. But in the end, we all will worship him. And verse 15, woe to him. And just consider this and see if we've ever seen anything like this in our culture. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. 
The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. And this is the woe to the abusers. And here we are again talking about the strong drink and what it leads to. And this time, of course, as we've seen in our culture time and time again, it leads to all sorts of sexual immorality. And it's well documented, and we can even see a slight hint of it there with Belshazzar. But it's well documented that the Babylonians, they would have these big, huge parties and drunkenness and all sorts of sexual immorality would be taking place just out in the open. But he says, woe to him that make people drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. And I thought, we have an entire culture, we have an entire industry built on that. And God says, woe. Woe to them. Great distress to them who do this. Why? Because it's evil. It's utterly evil in the sight of the Lord. But again, we see that God is not going to use this nation as a judge of Judah and then let them off the hook. No. On the contrary, Habakkuk tells us that they're going to reap what they sow. It's almost like a sarcastic, like, just go do it, party on. He says it right there in in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. How many of us did that describe before Christ came into our lives? I know it did me. I would shame. There was no shame. But now with Christ, that's changed. But when you go out and you look and you just see the mocking and the terrible sinful nature of the men, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're having their fill of shame rather than glory. But then he says, drink yourself. Show your uncircumcision. Show your flesh. Show how far away from God you are. But then he says this, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. That's the cup of wrath. And it is coming. It may seem slow. And that was, remember, you go back to the beginning of Habakkuk. He's like, why, Lord? Why are you not acting on this? And God says, I am. You won't believe how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to punish them. And now Habakkuk is saying, I get it. You can see him understanding what's going on. God's going to punish Israel using the Babylonians, and then God's going to punish the Babylonians, and his cup of wrath is never far away, and it will come around, and it will be poured out on you. Unless you come under the blood of Christ, who drank the cup himself in your, on your behalf. And that's the warning. That's where he leaves us. And then he says in verse 18 through 20, the final woe, and it's the woe to the idolater. So what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone. Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. 
before him. So it's woe to the idolater. And we've talked about this many times, and I think you've all thought about it, you've heard about it, you've meditated on it. We don't have these dumb idols, or at least I don't think you do. That doesn't mean they don't exist, because in other parts of the world they exist extensively. They're all over in other countries. And we think, well, that's so stupid. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever worship something that you made? Well, I don't know. Ask the millions upon millions of people who have done it. But then you stop to think, what is an idol really? It's a man-made God, right? It's a God that you have formed. Now, the difference in us and other heathen countries is that we don't actually go out and make it with our hands, but we form him in our mind, right? And that's what Paul was talking about a while ago in that, that study that they've done. Over 50% of the people, what was it? Over 50% don't believe Jesus is deity. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. They've created a Jesus in their mind. That's idolatry. That's what it is. And so Habakkuk here is saying woe to the idolaters. But it's not only making a God and know and, and thinking about, okay, this is God. They also that idolatry is also putting your trust in something other than God. And how many of us do that? How many of you have, how many of us, or have you ever thought about, well, if I just had a whole bunch of money, these problems would be gone? That's idolatry. Go back to drink. How many of you have ever turned to a bottle to try to escape your problems? Well, that's turning to idolatry. That, that's looking to something else other than God to solve your problems. As a parent, we can understand this. Your kids have a problem and they turn to their friend. They're both second graders. Their second grade friend has given them their great philosophical advice in life and it turns out disastrous. It doesn't get much better in high school either, by the way. The, the friends and their philosophical advice doesn't get a lot better and you're thinking, why didn't you just come to me and I, we, we could have worked this out. You can kind of get an understanding of, okay, I'm an adult. I've been through all this. I can help you with this. And, it, and your child is turning to something else or they turn on the TV and they watch something on there. Or, and you're just like, all you had to do was ask me. Well, how much worse is it when we have an infinite, all-knowing, loving God that we can turn to with our problems and we turn to a bottle or we turn to Oprah or we turn to, I mean, there's, you can, there's so many things that we put in there. Some of it, it may be creation. We may feel like, oh, I just got to get into, you know, the mountains and, you know, I can, I can think clearly and everything will be okay. I mean, it can be, Anything that you put above Christ can fit into this idolater, this idolatrous status. And he says, woe to the idolater. So we look at these things that they build with their hands and they overlay them with gold. And we think, that's so foolish. Those stupid people. And we're doing the exact same thing. The only difference is we keep it in our mind and we don't let it, we don't build it. 
And then the other truth of this is, maybe we idolize, we, we idolize things more than we realize as well. What about cars? What about design of, or art or, or things like that? Because the thing about these, these idols, there is no doubt in my mind the people that were making them were well-gifted craftsmen. When they made them, they weren't like this. I mean, if I made an idol, it'd be pretty, pretty bad. I carved me out a little deal, and people would go, what is it? It's a block of wood. But these guys, they knew how to do this, and they would make it, and people would go, wow, that's amazing. And so it's just, what my point in this is, we need to take heed at Habakkuk's warning not only to these physical idols, but to the idols that we have in our hearts and our minds. Because how, and, and however foolish you think it is to build a little statue or build a big statue and worship it, it is just as foolish to build anything in our mind and worship that or to put anything else above Christ. And I think we're probably all guilty of that at some point. But it's just as foolish. And then he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple and let all the earth keep silence before him. So we have all of this fake stuff and there's nothing new under the sun. We have all these fake religions. We have all these fake idols. We make up idols in our mind. It's all just false gods. It's all man trying to do something to earn himself some kind of favor. But he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. We can consider it now. Jesus is on his throne. Seated at the right hand of the Father. The work is finished. And it says, let all the earth keep silence before him. We can't bring anything to him. We can't bring an argument. Habakkuk kind of tried, right? He's questioning God at the beginning of the book. And God says, you, you just don't understand. My ways are so much higher than your ways. And that's what we got to keep in mind. When we don't understand, God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And there's things that he's going to do that we don't understand. And there's ways that he's going to correct us as believers. And we may not understand it. And there's ways that he's going to correct our culture using all kinds of heathens, all kinds of other heathen nations. And we may not understand it, but this we know. We can trust him, just as Habakkuk did. And we want to be like Habakkuk. And be true embracers of God in those times and the times when we do understand. The times when we can see where God is leading. The times where we can see that he's working. And we want to be true embracers of God in both times. Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who is able to take this message and, and... apply it to people's minds and hearts and I pray for that today as obviously I'm so ill-equipped and inadequate and I thank you for the privilege that you've given me to do this and I'll never understand why but I thank you for that God I, I pray Lord and I thank you for the conviction that I felt in these scriptures And I pray that that conviction would be on all of us, 
Lord, that we would not fall into these sinful natures of our flesh, the sinful nature that all of our flesh would like to go, that you would override that so powerfully that we would not even desire it, but that we would desire to honor you, that we would desire to worship you. And that's it. That's all. That's, that's my prayer today for each of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.